This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and what you need to know to protect yourself and your family in this increasingly toxic world. Welcome back. Synthetic turf fields are common at college and professional sports stadiums and thousands of municipal and high school fields across the country. But we're learning that these giant plastic fields come with a heavy price tag nobody wants to pay. A team of reporters from Philadelphia are breaking this story wide open, and everyone from the NFL to local soccer clubs are taking notice. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Over the past 20 years, a familiar pattern has played out in communities across the country. It goes something like this. A salesman shows up in town hawking an amazing new kind of athletic field that never needs to be mowed, never needs pesticides, and can be played on in any weather condition. This state-of-the-art field lasts for years and can even be imprinted with the town or school's logo. Even professional sports teams are playing on this new miracle surface. The salesman makes friends with the local sports coaches and talks to parents about how great the new field would be for their young athletes. And before too long, the community decides to spend millions of dollars ripping up the old grass field and replacing it with a shiny new plastic synthetic turf field. In the United States alone, there are approximately 13,000 synthetic turf sports fields with about 1,500 new ones being installed each year but a dark cloud has begun to form over these fields. As with most things that seem too good to be true, synthetic turf fields are turning out to be just that. Each year, each month actually, it seems like more health problems are linked to PFAS. And there's a question and people are saying, look, we need to study this more, especially when it comes to turf and PFAS in the turf. That's Barbara Laker, a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer talking about PFAS chemicals, those forever chemicals that are now being recognized as cancer-causing, endocrine-disrupting substances that are among the most toxic and most persistent and most widely used of any chemicals in our world. Barbara and fellow reporter David Gambacorda have been writing about the chemicals in synthetic turf ever since they first learned about six members of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team who all died of glioblastoma, an aggressive brain cancer. In 2022, David West, a former pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies that died of glioblastoma, and he at that time became the sixth former member of the Phillies to die of brain cancer. And that piqued Barbara's interest in mine, and, and we wondered if there could potentially be a connection between these illnesses, uh, because glioblastoma is you know, such a, a rare form of cancer. And our attention turned to where the Phillies had played from 1971 to 2003, and that was Veterans Stadium. The stadium was demolished uh, in 2004, so we we couldn't quite dig it up. But Barbara had started consulting with some scientific experts, and they suggested that we consider looking at the turf. And fortunately, we we were able to find actual pieces of the Vets' turf on eBay. Uh, because the Phillies had in in 1982 given away pieces of their turf, 
the, the turf that had actually been on the field when they won the World Series in 1980. And uh, luckily for us, people had you know kept these little squares of turf in, in its original plastic, uh, you know, fully sealed for the better part of four decades. And um, we were able to to get those samples uh, tested by, by two different labs. So the first lab we took them to, an expert told me to go to Eurofin's lab in Lancaster. She told me to ask for them to test it for 70 different PFAS. Because as you guys probably know, there's like thousands upon thousands, like 12,000 different kinds of PFAS. And only two really have been studied extensively. And so, or not even really extensively, but studied at all. So we asked for the testing of 70 different PFAS. And at that lab, it came back with 16 different PFAS, including one of the ones that they've studied as being a health hazard. And then I had been talking to Graham Peasley, an expert at Notre Dame University, and he actually offered to, if we got more samples, so David got more samples of the turf, and we mailed those samples to Graham Peasley at Notre Dame, and he tested it too. Not for as many, not as for 70, but he also found several PFAS in the samples that we gave him. And this was, what's amazing is this turf was 40 years old and older. So PFAS is still there. Um, 40 years later, it kind of proves that th there's a reason why they're called forever chemicals. Of course, mere exposure to these toxic chemicals doesn't prove they are the cause of the Phillies' cancer. There were some experts who took exception to the idea that PFAS and the turf could be responsible. We had been in conversation for months uh, with the Phillies leading up to the publication of the first story, which we had called Field of Dread. We, we tried to be really transparent with our reporting and, you know, the fact that we had not, you know, solved this in, in so many words. Uh, it wasn't like, we, you know, we had had sort of a, an airtight conclusion that we came to. It was more, you know, we would found these chemicals and, and that certainly seemed to suggest a possible uh, link. And right before we published the story that the Phillies sent us statements, some of which were from a professor at Duke, and uh, he you know, was adamant that there was no way that PFAS could have caused glioblastoma, that it couldn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And, you know, sort of seemingly saying that this, even to pose this as a possible theory, uh, you know, was, was wrong. And Barbara reached out to, to more experts and did um, quite a bit of 11th hour digging. Barbara's digging paid off. Sure enough, there were solid studies in the literature refuting the claim that the chemicals couldn't possibly be responsible for the brain cancer. These studies showed that not only PFAS can be found in the brain, um, so that throughout the whole theory that it can't cross the brain barrier, but also one study that looked at tumors, glioblastoma tumors, that PFAS was actually found in the tumors. Since we published that story, there have been more studies that raise the possibility that glioblastoma can be linked to toxins, including PFAS. We're not saying that it caused it. We're not saying anything like that. We're saying that PFAS clearly causes a number of health issues. It's been linked to prostate cancer, kidney cancer, like two or three cancers. And people are saying, look, we need to study this more, especially when it comes to turf 
and PFAS in the turf. The temperatures get really, really hot on the turf. David and I went to archives at both Temple University and City Archives, and it showed that during the time the Phillies players played at the vet, that the temperature of the turf could get up to like 160 degrees. And experts told us that when you have a chemical like that and you heat it up, it becomes more toxic, it vaporizes and becomes more toxic. So theoretically that these players and anyone playing on turf can inhale it. They know it can be absorbed through the skin. And everyone is crying out saying, look, we need more studies on this to know exactly the, is there a link? And if so, how strong is it? And what action should be taken as a result? So why is it that no one knew about these toxic chemicals before now? Why didn't anyone raise the red flags back when these fields first came on the market? Because the chemical companies knew that PFAS was being used, obviously, in the turf for decades. But all the experts that David and I talked to told us that outside the chemical companies or the turf companies, nobody else knew was aware that PFAS was actually in the turf until 2019. So like years and years went by where we weren't even aware. We didn't know that PFAS was in it. And in fact, when David and I started working on this series and I first learned of the term PFAS, I thought I'd never heard of PFAS. And I'm like, what? How do you say that? What is it? And then of course we learned a lot more about it. And it was kind of amazing to me that the chemical companies knew about this and knew the dangers of PFAS for a long, long time and didn't tell anyone that it was, it's not listed as an ingredient uh, because it's used in the manufacturing part. And it's not like you buy a Teflon pan and it says um, one of the ingredients is PFAS. So um, I think that's one reason why the studies are haven't been all completed yet because we didn't even know PFAS was in all these things for years and years. For many years, children's health advocates and pediatricians have worried about the impact of exposure to the toxins in the crumb rubber that's used to cushion synthetic turf fields. Crumb rubber is known to contain a long list of harmful chemicals that volatize into the air and athletes breathe in every time they play on the field. We know the crumb rubber has lead and all these other chemicals that they know are carcinogen. So everyone who plays on it is kind of getting hit from both sides because the crumb rubber contains carcinogens and PFAS could be carcinogenic. So you're getting it every which way. And so I think that's another reason why it's hard to determine, like if there is a higher rate of people who play on turf and get cancer, what's causing it? Is it the crumb rubber? Is it the PFAS? Is it both? How do you determine that? Professional sports is big business, and professional sports teams spend a lot of money on players. Players they have a vested interest in protecting, not only to keep them healthy during their playing careers, but to avoid costly litigation years later after they retire. How are the pros reacting to this news about the toxins in synthetic turf? One thing that came up in the fall of 2023 um, was the NFL Players Union. 
you know, they have for years been collecting data on player injury rates on artificial turf versus natural grass and have really tried to campaign on that aspect of players getting hurt more when they're playing on turf. But for the first time now, they are expressing concern about PFAS exposure and the potential uh, that that may be leading to, to illnesses among football players. And, and I think, you know, we did kind of limit ourselves uh, with that first story on glioblastoma. I think if we sort of broaden the lens to a lot of other cancers and there's, you know, some official effort made to survey other teams and other organizations, um, I feel pretty certain that we'd be talking about more than a handful of cases. And I, th I think that's really what's been missing to this point is, you know, on, a, on an official level, whether it's Major League Baseball or, or the NFL, you know, someone wanting to really dig in to this issue and, and determine whether there's a there there. Um, and, and just in talking with, with former NFL players in the fall, um, you know, their sense was that this was not something that the, that the NFL would really want to be digging into. One ex-Eagle that I had talked to said, you know, they, the league is still contending with uh, a lot of fallout from the concussion litigation and all of the concerns about the health impact of those injuries. You know, why would they want to open another can of worms and, and have another health issue to be talking about? Um, I, I think as time goes on, there will be more organizations uh, wanting to look into this. You know, maybe maybe we're a little bit of canary in the coal mine in a sense. The thing that I was struck by, I mean, the NFL, I think, you know, it's a their revenue is somewhere around $12 billion a year. <laughs> um, you know, the stadiums have evolved so much in, in the last 30 years from, you know, cookie cutter municipal stadiums that really were not always of the best quality to now stadiums themselves cost a billion dollars to construct. So seemingly there would be a way to, <laughs> to find the money to have natural grass in all of the stadiums if, if there was a will to do that. The issues surrounding PFAS and playing fields don't stop when the field reaches the end of its life, usually about seven to eight years. How do you dispose of tons and tons of plastic carpeting imbued with toxic chemicals and filled with old ground-up vehicle tires with their own toxic chemicals? The same factors that make these fields dangerous for anyone to spend time on make them incredibly hard to dispose of. David Gambacorta and Barbara Laker looked into this issue too, and what they found was quite disturbing. We found that there's this recycling, so-called recycling company out of Denmark, and um, they had people telling all these municipalities that, that, yeah, you just give us the turf and we'll have it recycled at the first facility in the U.S. in Pennsylvania. And it turns out the facility isn't open and the company in some instances was taking the turf and then dumping it in like farmlands across Pennsylvania. Acres and acres of toxic waste just sitting there and they don't have a recycling plant. Then we found another guy who said he recycles it and I went to his plant and he had this whirring machine going on and he, he told me later that he was separating the crumb rubber and the sand in that machine and reselling it. And then I said, well, what do you do with the, with the grass part, like the blade part? Yeah, and he said, well, we have partners who we are giving that to. And I said, well, who are your partners? And he said, that's none of your business. So who knows? And then we started digging deeper and we found like on Facebook, 
and all these other websites, there are all these people selling turf all over Pennsylvania, all over the country, but like, especially in the Northeast. And they're lining like batting cages, dog runs, all this stuff with it. I suspect some of it is just in some river or creek, wherever, where they could just dump it. Cause it costs, as you know, like with tires, you can't put it in a landfill. You can put artificial turf in a landfill in Pennsylvania, it, but it would cost a lot of money. And so I, I suspect that some of it's just dumped somewhere. So now what? What do we do with 13,000 toxic synthetic turf fields? What are parents and coaches supposed to do? What are school boards and communities supposed to do? This is not an issue that really had been extensively studied. You know, nobody was, was attempting in the, in the 80s and 90s to determine whether or not there were some, some risks at play that were worth monitoring over the years ahead. So, you know, right now what's emerging is, is you know, more anecdotal. But I, I think we're, we're going to be learning a lot, you know, in, in the next couple of years as studies sort of intensify and, and it's more attention is being drawn to, to this issue. Barbara Laker and David Gambacorda, investigative reporters for the Philadelphia Inquirer, talking about what they've learned and what every parent of a young athlete should know about synthetic turf fields. We'll be right back with Patty and the week's headlines. All right, Patty, so what were the headlines from the environmental health world this week? Well, the New York Times has done this great series on water and how the Wall Street company behind Poland Spring gets rid of laws it doesn't like. They get rid of the laws? How do do they do that? When Maine lawmakers tried to rein in large-scale access to the state's fresh water this year, the effort initially gained momentum. The state had just emerged from drought, and many Mainers were sympathetic to protecting their snow-fed lakes and streams. Then a Wall Street-backed giant called Blue Triton stepped in. Blue Triton isn't a household name, but its products are. Americans today buy more bottled water than any other packaged drink, and Blue Triton owns many of the nation's biggest brands, including Poland Spring, which is named after a natural spring in Maine that is no longer commercially viable. So the water doesn't come from Poland Spring anymore? Oh no, they used it all up. Maine's bill threatened Blue Triton's access to the groundwater it bottles and sells. The legislation had already gotten a majority vote on the committee and was headed toward the full legislature when a lobbyist for Blue Triton proposed an amendment that would gut the entire bill. Quote, strike everything, starts the proposed amendment, which was written in a Word document that contained a digital signature showing that it had been created by Elizabeth M. Frazier, who represents Blue Triton and is one of the most influential lobbyists in Maine. The committee pulled the bill back. Wow. Strike everything. I love it. Just get rid of the whole bill. That was their amendment? To get rid of the whole bill? While the bottled water business doesn't use nearly as much groundwater as the nation's thirstiest industries like agriculture, the pressure on bottlers is building as awareness grows of the stress that intensive pumping can place on local water supplies. 
Many of the aquifers that supply 90% of the nation's water systems are being severely depleted as overuse and global warming transform fragile ecosystems. You know, I, w I just wonder why people continue to buy bottled water when you can get a, you know, a reasonably good home filter and you could get a water container. A reusable water reusable bottle. Reusable water bottle. And, uh, you that know. That should be the standard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they could save a lot of money. And that's a tremendous amount of plastic that would not have to be manufactured and then right. disposed of somehow. Right. Maine's bill seeks, among other things, to put a seven-year limit on contracts for large-scale freshwater pumping by corporations that ship water out of Maine and to make the deal subject to local approval. That would block Blue Triton's current efforts to lock in contracts for up to 45 years for pumping water. Wow. It's hard to believe that this goes on. This is a very sad story, really, to take water that's been there for millions and millions and millions and of years. And that serves the public in the, that region. Yeah, and now they deplete the aquifers, and now there's no more water for people to drink. They have to go buy it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The sense is that people are making money from it. Who that's are, what who makes sense. Have you ever heard of Blue Triton? You ever heard uh, of that name before? No, no. We've been around the environmental business for a long time. Never heard that word before. Never heard Blue that Triton company name. Blue Triton isn't a household name. No. But its products are. And yet they have the power to undo legislation that is that the majority of the legislature wants to pass. Uh-huh. Capitalism at work. Okay, what else you got? Our friend Christina Marusic, the writer for Environmental Health News, had an op-ed last month in The Hill. Yeah, that's the, the Washington, D.C. magazine that every member of Congress reads. What did she write about? Cancer is on the rise among millennials and young people. Since health officials began collecting data in the 1970s, charts tracking cancer in children and young adults are distressingly uniform, with diagonal lines steadily climbing upward. In the U.S., rates of childhood leukemia, the most common type of childhood cancer, increased 35% from 1975 to 2019. Childhood brain cancer rose by 33%. Today, one in 285 Americans are diagnosed with cancer before their 20th birthday. Cancer is the leading cause of death by disease. These increases are too rapid to result from genetic changes, which happen over centuries, not decades. Nor are they clearly the result of better diagnostic tools. This is a real, rapid increase in childhood cancer rates. If it's not a result of genes or behavior, it's likely caused by something in the environment. And one thing in our shared environment has changed substantially during the same period. The number of manufactured chemicals we're exposed to on a daily basis. In the last 100 years, more than 300,000 new manufactured chemicals have been invented. Most new chemicals are not even tested for safety, and fewer than 20% are evaluated for the potential to harm fetuses, infants, and children. And even when chemicals are tested and found to be dangerous, they generally stay on the market, at least in the U.S. The World Health Organization has identified at least 100 manufactured chemicals that can cause cancer in humans, but only five have been removed from U.S. markets in the last 50 years. That's one chemical every decade. And how many chemicals did you say there were? 100 manufactured chemicals that the World Health Organization has identified that can cause cancer. You know, those statistics that you read are really quite alarming the mm -hmm. increase in cancer. And of course, you know, every city now has its own children's cancer center. 
and its own hospital. You see these brand new hospital wings going up, the such and such children's cancer center. This is an obviously an epidemic. We're not paying attention to it. It's devastating for these families. You see the ads on TV. Please give us money for children's cancer to help these poor families dealing with, with young ones, two and three and four year olds that have cancer. Chemicals get into our bodies through our air, water, and food, and by being absorbed through our skin. Several hundred are found in the bodies of almost every person on earth, including infants and children. But even scarier, and this is really true, research has shown that parents, grandparents, and even great-grandparents' chemical exposures can increase a child's risk of disease. So we're talking about generations after an exposure takes place a cancer may develop. Yeah. You would think that the parents of children with cancer would really kind of rise up and raise some alarm bells about this. But I don't hear too much complaining about it. I mean, we talk about it. A few other time. shows, a few other shows talk about it, but mostly the public is oblivious to it. Right. An estimated 90 to 95% of all cancers are caused by preventable factors, but only 7 to 9% of all cancer funding goes toward prevention. Yeah. Pursuing new cures and treatments is critical, but we should be doing much more to prevent cancer in the first place. Yeah. So, all right. Thank yeah, you. Thank that's... you, Christina. Thank you, Christina Marisic. Good article. Okay. You got another one? Yeah, I have one more. This is a California governor vetoes bill that would require microplastic filters on washing machines. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any <clears throat> sense to me. We all know that the filters is really an important thing in terms of stopping these microplastics. Yeah. Why would he say no? California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed Assembly Bill 1628, which would have required plastic microfiber filters on new residential washing machines sold in the state by 2029. The bill passed the California legislature would have prevented millions of pounds each year of one of the most pernicious forms of microplastic pollution. That's six years from now. That's six right. years? But he already vetoed this bill. Newsom, in a brief letter, said that while he takes microfiber contamination seriously, he is concerned that the bill would increase cost to consumers in advance of further research being completed and establishing the public policy rationale and details for new residential requirements. Advocates disputed this claim, saying that evidence-based scientific and economic research underpinned the bill. Sure. Hello. An economic study commissioned by Ocean Conservancy, for example, found that the filters would have increased the price tag of washing machines by 14 to $20, or about $2 per year over a machine's average lifespan. Two bucks a year, that's less than a latte. Yeah, I think, we, I think people could afford that. A single load of laundry can release millions of minuscule plastic strands ranging in length from the size of a sesame seed down to a single bacterium. About two million tons of plastic microfibers enter the ocean each year. Next to wear and tear from tires, which is number one, laundering of synthetic textiles is the biggest source of microplastic pollution in the ocean, according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I would think that California would be out front on this issue. Yeah. Not I mean, with all the research that they've done, they showed that using these filters in washing machines can actually achieve up to 40% reduction in microplastics. Yeah. Yeah. But a water treatment plant can actually capture about 99% of microplastics, but... 
What happens if you just capture it in the, in the water treatment plants? It doesn't prevent these fibers from contaminating the environment because that nutrient-rich sludge from the treatment plant, also known as biosolids, is spread on fields as fertilizer, allowing microfibers to enter the air, water, and soil, as well as plant and animal tissue. Sending these thread-like contaminants to landfills is a better solution, as most landfills in the U.S. are engineered to keep their contents contained. Boy, are we screwing up the earth. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guests this week, investigative reporters Barbara Waker and David Gambacorda of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Also thanks to our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.